the return of Ryan Holiday to the podcast to talk about his latest book, Discipline is Destiny. So many fascinating stories that Ryan has uncovered new details in, whether it's Lou Gehrig, Dwight Eisenhower, Queen Elizabeth, and dozens more to talk about this concept of how discipline and what kind of discipline, and it's not what, maybe what you think, what kind of discipline can change your life for the better. I have to say this book and this interview had a big effect on me. So I hope it has that effect on you as well. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Ryan, how are things going with you? How's the bookstore? Things are amazing. I'm, the bookstore is downstairs right now. I am so proud of you for doing a book, for having your own bookstore. I've always wanted to have my own bookstore, and of course, I've never done it. I've done other things. I've had my own comedy club, but... I'm much more interested in books and writing. I've always loved the idea of having some sort of bookstore. You did it. We're going to talk about Discipline is Destiny, your book. But I would have been dissuaded because bookstores are basically going down. Like Barnes & Noble is, is, is the walking dead. Yes. It's going to go out of business. Every time I walk into a Barnes & Noble, there's fewer books in the bookstore. You know, I know it's going out of business. Borders did the same thing. What made you go into that to get a bookstore? <laughs> I would actually say your comedy club was part of that process for me. Uh, it's just the coolness of a physical space. The idea that when one is successful at what they do, it should allow them to pursue certain cool projects on the side and then be able to, like, it's the bookstore still has to work as a business but it doesn't have to work that well as a business. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm, cause I'm insulated from like, uh, I'm insulated a little bit from the, from the wicked economics of, of the industry. But I think for me, like at some point, what hit me was that like pretty much everything I do is digital and at scale, right? Like 60 plus percent of my book sales are digital. My podcast, right? All over the world, you know, millions and millions of downloads, YouTube, uh, scale, digital, marketing scale digital all, all everything i do is is designed to be digital and for a lot of people most of whom i will never meet i just got really excited about doing something real for a small group of people and the sort of craft and like place of it all and it's been like one of the things i'm probably most proud of ever doing it is a great thing like i felt the same way as you i all my businesses were always digital and I only knew, I lived in, we all live in ones and zeros now. Yeah. And actually having a physical space I could walk to and call my own and other people would go there to spend money for their pleasure, you know, because it was a comedy club. It made yeah. people laugh. And it was something I, a real thing I owned. And I have since sold it. And fortunately, I'm probably the, the one comedy owner in history to, to break even on my investment. Like you say, it just has to work. It doesn't necessarily work well. I think actually it's been doing very well since I left it. I really needed physical space anyway. Like I, I wanted somewhere out of my house that I could write in, that I could have meetings in, that my employees could come and go from when they needed to. And and my wife was basically also like, you got to get all these books out of our house. Like it's just too much. And so like I was kind of- So wait, are, are the books in the bookstore your book collection that you're selling? <laughs> no, no, uh, upstairs. Like uh, uh, 
instead of being a book hoarder at home, I can now keep all my books somewhere else, right? And so I was like, I needed the physical space. And I, and, and I also needed like, this is, I, I was doing the project before the pandemic and before everything went fully remote. But like, I needed like a space to film YouTube videos. I needed a space to film podcasts. I needed a space to like, to do what I do. And I didn't want that to be in a spare bedroom in my house or something. And so one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was doing a, when I was thinking about it, I asked this woman, Allison Hill. She owns uh, Book Soup in Los Angeles, which is one of the great indie bookstores. And now she's the head of the ABA, which is like the American Booksellers Association. Anyways, she was saying that the three keys to, to opening a bookstore were, number one, you have to own the building. Number two, you have to have multiple uses for the space. And number three is you can't spend all your money on, on the reno. Like you have to sort of do it by pieces. So anyway, so like the, the idea for us of like having multiple uses for the space means that like the bookstore, it's not a charity, but like the office space and the productive function of the building already pays for everything. And then if people buy books, it's extra. And it turns out they do buy books and it's it's done amazing. And I'm doing the launch of the new book. Like I'm selling the books directly, which is new for me. Um, all, all of that has made made it work on like a handful of levels. So it's it's been a really awesome experience. It's a real critical insight to have multiple uses of the space, particularly given the lessons the pandemic taught us, which is that the use of space is changing because of digital. Everybody that used to shop in stores now developed a habit of buying on Amazon. Like all the money's going to Seattle which is a yeah. problem for major cities. And so having multiple uses is a lesson that every storefront owner needs to learn now, for better or for worse. Yeah, I think so. And, and having some e-commerce element to what you do. So probably 30% of our sales are still online, which is pretty cool. And then uh, I also feel like, though, because so much is online, it actually creates uh, an opportunity for retail that is an experience, right? So like, as I thought about the bookstore, if I try to compete with Amazon or with Barnes & Noble, I'm obviously going to lose, right? Like if I try to carry every book that exists, I'm going to drown in inventory and I'm going to have to spend a ton on overhead. It's not going to work. So like we only carry like 700 books in the bookstore, which is... Do you curate them? Yeah. So, so I have read... My wife and I have read every single book in the bookstore and not just read it, wow. but like love that book, right? So... Uh, the average bookstore, like, this is the other funny thing. I think you would love this. So, like, people are like, I don't want to support Amazon, this multi-billion dollar conglomerate. Like, I want to support small businesses. But do you know who, who bookstores buy all their books from? Either directly from publishers, which are multi-billion dollar conglomerates, or they buy them from Ingram, which is like a $10 billion company in Tennessee that is a distributor for all the publishers, right? So... The point is when you when you go to start a bookstore, you call up Ingram and they go, here are the 10,000 books that we recommend that you carry, right? And that's what a bookstore of our size should have. It should have 10,000 titles in it, which is insane. Like 10,000 books. Like I can't even think of a thousand great books, let alone 10,000 great books. It's almost a sad thing because like 10,000 authors expect all to be read. Yes. <laughs> and... And who reads all these books? Like, I, 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 you go to a bookstore, maybe you buy one book and yeah. maybe two. 10,000 people, are, you're leaving that bookstore, you're just leaving them unread. And everybody is doing that all day long. It's totally. kind of sad to be a writer, unless you're like in the upper echelons of it. 
And you think about it too, like how often do you walk into an independent bookstore and you're after a specific book? Like you walk into an independent bookstore for the discovery, right? So the idea that they would have 10,000 titles, which a human being couldn't possibly browse through, even in months of visiting a bookstore, is actually a really bad way of doing it. So the decision to have way fewer books, to put them face out, and to actually be able to recommend and rave about each one actually makes the shopping experience much better. And I think that's why the bookstores work. People come in and they're like, oh, I should read all these books, not like I should ignore all these books to maybe find the one that I'm interested in. See, this is an interesting thing. And, and again, I, in the intro, I talked about Discipline is Destiny. We're going to get to it. I want It's a great book. I want to talk all about it. But I am really fascinated by the bookstore and what you're saying right now about capitalism. Because without the profit motive, and by the way, I'm a huge believer in capitalism, of course, but without the profit mo- motive, you're creating a better experience. For instance, you say the books are face out. Well, in Barnes & Noble, the only way to be face out is if the publisher pays for that. Most people don't know yes. that. So, yeah. so you're creating a better experience for your customer without the profit motive. And so I'm trying to just wrap my head around that because that's, it seems to me unusual. Like a Soviet Union bookstore would not be as good as your bookstore, for instance. But yet it's also actually is part of the profit motive. Like, did you ever go in an Amazon bookstore? Yeah. They, they did the same thing. They only had their best-selling titles and they were almost all face out. So I just took the idea from them, like in part. I was I like, oh, like there's a reason that publishers pay to be face out. It's that it helps discovery. Like you look, if someone's looking at behind me and they see all the titles, it blends in and then like the mine sticks out because it's face out, right? So I was like, if that must also drive sales. So I'm just going to put the best stuff face out and people will be more likely to buy books. Here's the other thing. Most bookstores are also not driven by the profit motive, and it's why they don't do very well. Like when I walk mm. into the, my average independent bookstore, they don't have my books, even though I know I sell a lot of books because self-help is not a fancy literary category, right? Your books too, like they, they would sell your books, but they choose not to carry them because they'd rather carry this like, you know, uh, intersectional, you know, protest poetry book that isn't going to sell any copies because it signals something to the kind of people that they're interested in impressing. And so I think far too often bookstores have been immune from the profit motive, even though publishing is actually a multi-billion dollar industry, like north of you know $50 billion a year. And I think Seth Godin's point once was that, you know, the vast majority of revenue in the publishing industry comes from the backlist, but all of the focus is on the front list. And yet, when you walk into a bookstore, the vast majority of the attention is also focused on new titles or titles that have never sold well. And then you go, oh, I want to get this classic business book. You're like, I'd like Jim Collins, Good to Great. And they're like, maybe we have a copy way over here tucked in the corner. But that would actually be what would be selling copies for them if they decided to get behind it. Right. Like if you think about it, the fact that you could say that book, and I know what you're referring to, and that's a book written in, if I believe I'm correct, 2001 or early 2002, and was an excellent business book. Some of the stories in it didn't age well, but the concept ages very well. And he was a kind enough author. I wrote him a letter in 2001 or 2002, right after he published the book and he responded and I was very grateful. It gave me a demonstration of how to be as an author, which I haven't always followed, but it was still a good demonstration. 
No, it's a classic. You want to you want to sell classics? Yeah. What are some of the books behind you right now? Uh, behind me, let's see. Uh, this is the Winston Churchill set by William Manchester, which I love. Uh, this is a book I did with Chris Bosch called uh, Letters to Young Athlete. Uh, the, uh, Seth Godin, yeah, here's the dip. That. Oh yeah, classic. Um, here is uh, the Chancellor about Angela Merkel, which I enjoyed. Let's see, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. I just read Isabel Wilkerson's Cast, which I really liked. What's it about? The racial caste system in America. Like that we think caste is something that only exists in India, but there is a very clear caste society and has been since the very beginning in America. You know, Native Americans, Black people, other races, white people. Let me, let me ask you a question, and this will begin the process of segueing to your okay. book. Um, do you think caste... And thinking it, caste is a, is a way of measuring status. So in India, yes. where, where, like you said, the word caste, we sort of think of that. There's a very, there's a strict hierarchy. This yes. is the highest caste. Untouchables is so low, it's not even considered a caste. And you can't marry out of your caste. And, or or if, if you're lucky, you can marry up. But it seems to me it, it's probably a natural human instinct. Like, every, like even writers. Oh, did you make it to the New York Times bestseller list? Then sure. you're in the highest caste of writers. Did you, do, are you, published in bookstores or did you sell there's different casts of writers like everything you could possibly be interested in that's worth it is measured by all these almost demeaning metrics that have nothing to do with the process yeah and we we slot ourselves into the appropriate cast a how has that affected you as a writer as someone who wants to improve as a writer and, and as a, a great accomplished author that you are now b is it a negative in general or is there positives to it yeah no, no, I think you're right. Like human beings, like uh, almost all animals, uh, inherently think about status and hierarchy and where we rank in the status and hierarchy. And there's anxiety, worry, fear, ambition is all tied up in, you know, are we at the top? Where's our place? You know, can we beat this person? Have they done more than us? Obviously, that I think is probably profoundly evolutionary and biological, and a lot of it can be very frustrating. Yeah, as you said, like I had sold well over a million books before I hit the New York Times bestseller list for the first time. Mm. So mm. the the lists are not even remotely representative of who is selling best. It's an artificial category, you know, that's filtered for a bunch of made up criteria that certain gatekeepers have decided that they get to decide, right? So if you're saying like, is hierarchy, is this kind of caste system good or bad, I would say, provided that it is fluid and real and based on actual merit, you know, I have no problem with, you know, sorting, uh, you know, players in the NBA by points scored or, you know, sure. number of rings won. Um, and, and provided that that any one person can change, has the agency to change their place in that system. The problem with most caste systems uh, first off, at least in India, there's an acknowledgement that the caste system exists. America has always told itself it's a meritocracy when, in fact, it had a very clear caste system. So I, I, I dislike the dishonesty of it. But I would say the problem with a caste system is that people begin to associate their worth or someone else's lack of worth with things that have nothing to do with that person or what that person's done, right? So the, the argument right. for a lot of the political unrest we have now or 
anxiety or worry or polarization. It has a lot to do with people feeling like their perceived place in the cast in the case system that they've always had that like, you know, that basically she argues in the book that that for all of America's history, the lowest rung of a white person could confidently feel themselves better than the most successful black person. Right. That that was how that worked, that you always were better than the people beneath you, no matter how talented or successful or brilliant they were. You could always remind them of their place and of their inferiority to you. Right. This is why lots of Southerners who did not own slaves fought in the Civil War. They wanted to protect their place in a system, not exactly the institution of slavery. If you see Confederate, the Confederacy as a mechanism to enforce a caste system, it makes more sense than as a uh, system to protect slavery as an institution, although those two things are related. So I think the big problem with the caste system is that people begin to think that they are better, that these made-up labels or the history or the things that went into this moment say anything about them, which of course they they don't. And so on on the one hand, I think what appeals to me in, in a lot of your books, including this Discipline is Destiny, is that you look at features beyond the cast of what, obviously you write stories about famous people because we relate to those. We know, we partially know the stories. You add features that we learn lessons from. And it's very much Robert Greene style. Yes. One of your mentors, you know, who wrote 48 uh, Laws of Power and many other great books. And but like take Lou Gehrig is one of your yeah. stories. And you quoted statistics, 400, whatever it was, 95 home runs, 350 RBI. But then you tell this deeper story of why it was, what was it about his, his childhood, his nature, his temperament that made him show up for over 2,100 straight games in a row, even as he was succumbing to, you know, what became known as Lou Gehrig's disease and ALS. So you kind of start almost with these cast-like metrics but then tell the real story. I think this is the story of stoicism is going beyond kind of the instinct for hierarchy to find out what really makes the person, you know, a, a, a good person. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I do. I'm definitely fascinated by people who were great. And I don't mean great in the sense that they accomplished a lot. Like, I think that's what's so interesting about Lou Gehrig is that his greatness, like one one of one of his teammates says, he was the greatest uh, man, the finest man who ever walked the earth. And then he's like, you know, he woke up early, he went to bed early, he worked hard, you know, he he never smoked or drank. And he's like, these are pretty ordinary things that you're using to describe someone as transcendent. You know, what is that about? Like, I'm interested in people who were great, not necessarily because they accomplished a lot, although they often do but they had something in them that just kind of separated them from someone else. And I, I'm trying to either highlight the virtue of that or provide, as Robert Greene sort of taught me to do, the cautionary element of like either a personality flaw or a, 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 a virtue taken too far. So I'm just, I'm interested in not just like, hey, here's a good thing to do. I'm interested in illustrating it through a complex, complicated person in such a way that, you know, part of that maybe rubs off on their reader. Well, it's interesting, sort of the 
separation between the normal feature and the almost transcendent like historical features like like you mentioned in two different sentences very close to each other Dwight Eisenhower at the peak of him being the supreme military commander of post-war Europe he was responsible in some way or other for the lives of 700 million people yeah but the story is really about him quitting smoking <laughs> and which again is an ordinary feature but unbelievably hard like nicotine is incredibly addictive and and people smoke despite the fact it takes on average 11 years off of your life and you can't always do what he did was you said he just stopped one day and that was it that's hard for many addicted yeah. people but that's the story that's what makes him transcendent to you not that he controlled 700 million people well, I, I think both are both are obviously transcendent. I, I I highlight like his immense amount of power to make the point that no one could tell him what to do, right? Like he he was literally the most powerful man on the earth, right? He has nuclear weapons before the Soviets have nuclear weapons. He literally could have destroyed the whole world if he wanted to, right? And what does he do with this power? He says freedom is the opportunity for self discipline. And so his point was that from all this power, all this fame, all this access, everything that he's done, you know, what that really meant was that he had to be in charge of himself. There's a great line from Seneca. Seneca says, like, he is worthy of power who is under their own power, right? And so even when I'm talking about Eisenhower's decision to stop smoking, I'm trying to make the point that, again, he can do whatever he wants. And yet it's this immense struggle, this discipline to be like, I'm going to get, he says, I gave myself an order to stop smoking, right? Like the hardest thing to do is actually that, right? Like lots of people become, you know, lead big armies, but then they have trouble quitting small habits. And so I, I'm trying, to me, it was a study in contrast that uh, we often think that the real benefit of becoming powerful, becoming CEO, becoming rich is that we become exempt from the rules, that we get to do anything and everything we want. But in reality, success and power and fame, all this really demands of you is that you be a better boss to yourself than anyone could be the boss of you. I, I think this is an important lesson and it's not an easy one. Like no. I've read biographies of Eisenhower, for instance, and it goes through the chrono chronology of his life childhood, you know, military commander, president, on and on. But I don't think I've ever read that he was either a smoker or had stopped smoking in any of his biographies. So what's great about this book is you're showing, the book is obviously Discipline is Destiny, and you're showing how it's not because he was supreme military commander that he then became president. Like we often think external news headline success breeds more success, but what you're saying here is that these small disciplines are so important to create that success and are so often ignored. Like in every story, like your style is you have this point, discipline creates your destiny. And then you have these various stories, Lou Gehrig, Eisenhower, Joyce Carol Oates, who I've read about. I've read many of her books. I've read all about her. You describe stories and quotes I had never seen or heard before. Like you're always bringing something new to the table. And, and, and really the focus was on her discipline. I didn't even know how prolific she was until you wrote it in this book, but it's a hard lesson. Like you say towards the end of the book, uh, you have some stories about you should do your best. Yeah. Well, when someone tells me to do my best, I I'm trying. I don't, what do you mean? <laughs> like, how do I do it? 
Why, why am I not doing my best? What does it look like? I'm not doing my best. What's going on? How do you do your best? So Jay, I was about to read this ad for Mint Mobile, but then you tell me that you're switching to Mint Mobile. Where, what are you switching from? I want to switch from AT&T to Mint Mobile. I'm paying like almost 200 bucks a month. Well, what's Mint Mobile going to charge you? Maybe $50 a month. That's like a huge difference. And I know that they start at 15. Oh, wow. Mint Mobile, they sell online only, so they don't have all the overhead of supporting all these useless stores. That's kind of their secret sauce, I think. So by cutting out the retail store, there's no crazy overhead costs that you have to pay, essentially pay for in these mystery fees. They have unlimited talk, the nation's largest 5G network. So you can take your phone that you got from AT&T. You could use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or a family. Family started two lines. To get your new wireless plan for just $15 a month and get this plan shipped to your door for free, Go to mintmobile.com slash James. You got to do the slash James because then they will treat you like royalty. That's mintmobile.com slash James. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at M-I-N-T, mintmobile.com slash James. And Jay, you know, I think I'm going to switch along with you. Yeah, let's go. Uh, I just want to talk to Ryan Reynolds. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. He's the guy. We'll get him on the podcast if we keep doing these ads. Yeah, let's do it. Probably the best biographer to ever write was this guy, Plutarch, who I'm sure you've read. Uh, actually, his, his grandson is Marcus Aurelius, his philosophy teacher, as it happens. But Plutarch writes this book, Lives of the Eminent Greeks and Romans. And he writes a number of essays and profiles of these sort of major figures from, you know, 500 years or so uh, behind him and up to the present. And he has this great observation. He says, you can often find out more about a person in an offhanded comment, in you know, a singular exchange or incident than you can in a vivid retelling of their greatest deeds or campaigns. And his point was that it, it, we often get to the essence of one of these people, not in the as you said, the point-by-point -point chronology of what they did, not in portraying exactly what happened here or there, but in, in, the, in the revealing moments where they illustrated what was really driving them. And to me, again, Eisenhower, this idea of like, I gave myself an order to stop smoking, to me is like that you get the essence of who this man was from that exchange. So I, I'm interested in in finding that. And, and to go to your point about doing your best, well, I found this story about Jimmy Carter that really struck me that Jimmy Carter actually writes, I know you're living in Georgia now, writes in his campaign biography when he's uh, running for governor of Georgia. This is where he first tells his story. By the way, which was titled, Why Not the Best? Yes, yes, exactly. I read it when he was running. <laughs> so, so people don't think of Jimmy Carter, like they think of Jimmy Carter as this kindly old man. They don't think about him as an ambitious young naval officer, which he was. He goes to the U.S. Naval Academy. And I told this story when I spoke there not long ago. He, 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 he's at the U.S. Naval Academy. He graduates. And his dream is to work on a nuclear submarine. And to, to, to make it into 
uh, a nuclear submarine, you have to be personally interviewed at that time by this guy, Admiral Hyman Rickover, who's probably one of the greatest but less known Americans of the of the 20th century. Um, and Rickover, they do this long interview. It's kind of like a podcast. It's like a two-hour interview or three-hour interview. They talk about all these complex topics. They talk about physics. They talk about strategy. You know, they talk about everything. And then, and then uh, uh, Rickover asks Carter, he says, you know, how did you stand in your class at the Naval Academy? And he says, you know, I was 50th out of a class of 800. He's very proud of himself. And Rickover, who has seen probably number one through 49 in the Naval Academy already, goes, but did you always do your best? And Carter kind of, like you said, we like to think we're always doing our best, but we're not actually really tested on it, right? It's like a lie we can tell ourselves. And so Carter goes to be like, yes, of course, I've always done my best. But then he kind of thinks about it and he thinks about all the moments that he kind of stopped short or he coasted or he tried to not be the center of attention or he could have done more. And he goes, you know what, sir, I, I don't think I have always done my best. And uh, Rick overlooks at him and he says, why not? And then he gets up and he leaves the room. And this question of like, have I always done my best? It haunts Carter for the rest of his life. And if, if you see him then through the lens of this guy always trying to do his best, you start to understand his greatness, also some of his flaws. You understand the mistakes that he made. And, and so to me, it's not, I'm not saying like, do your best. And it's this kind of cliche. Um, obviously people know they should do their best, but I was trying to tell this story to leave the reader, hopefully, because I was left with it, the kind of hauntingness of that question of like, why didn't you always do your best? Like what, what stopped you from it? And hopefully that can linger as we, you know, I think about this as I'm, I'm, I'm working on a book right now. There's things I could do that would make it easier, right? Like there's things I could do that would cut corners and I know it would still do pretty well. But to stick with the process, you know, to stick to my standards, it requires, I think, a little bit being haunted by that question. Everything ultimately is about process. So you're not a writer because you're on the New York Times bestseller list. That has nothing to do with writing. You're mm -hmm. a writer because as you point out in the stories about Toni Morrison and Joyce Carol Oates, for instance, you you found time to write when nobody else was and you worked really hard at it and studied it and, and developed these stoic-like habits around the discipline of it and slowly built a career. And you've done this and every other writer in history pretty much has done this. It's when you get too focused on the external dressings of like, oh, are you on this list or that list? I think that the quality goes down in, in every case. Like Lou Gehrig, it, uh, you compared Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth's yeah. one of the best players in history, but ultimately had some severe problems in life because of a certain lack of discipline in, in many par smaller parts of his life. And Lou Gehrig was able to survive kind of almost the most horrific scenarios. And, and you became very attracted to the story of Lou Gehrig. I could tell your love yeah. for that story throughout the book. And, you know, it really shines a light that what's great is not the way he hits a baseball, but who he is before that, that allowed him to hit the baseball the way he did and, and, yeah. and have the perseverance to show up for games with why show up for games with broken fingers. Was that doing his best for himself? Clearly it was for him. But again, if the question is not, where did you do your best? It's why not do your best? Like we, yes. 
like I, I know for myself, I never say, oh, I did my best here, here, and here. It's more like what you just said is where can I be better? The negative actually gives us information. The positive never gives us information. Oh, I, I was great here, so I should do this again. No, no, you're, you're totally right. The, que the, the question is why it's really about why you didn't do your best and why, like I think for Gehrig, right, he's, he seems to be motivated by this not wanting to cheat the game, right? Like not wanting, like, and, and it, it, it seems weird to argue that Babe Ruth did this because he was so great, but Babe Ruth did cheat the game. Like Babe Ruth was fat, Babe Ruth was lazy, Babe Ruth was drunk all the time, Babe Ruth was reckless. Babe Ruth did not respect the game. Babe Ruth was inordinately naturally talented and loved the applause and the rewards of the game. But like there was no part of him that, from what I could gather, like deeply loved the act of doing it and had a kind of a reverence and respect for the process of it. So even when you look at the greatness of, of Babe Ruth, you have to be haunted a little bit by like the insane fact that he could have been, he could have been even better. Like he could have done more. And what's insane about Lou Gehrig is like his career is cut short, but there's no part of looking at the years he was physically able to play and you're and able to go, he could have done more. Yeah, it's interesting. And and so Babe Ruth, what we have there is we miss out on some joy because. Your point is he did not respect the game enough to hone in his bad habits as small or as big as they were and really be disciplined. He had so much potential, as many people say about young people, he had so much potential and did not live up to it. And what joy did he deprive hundreds of millions of fans of because of that? And, and your point then is whether it's writing, whether you have a job at a company, maybe perhaps the way to think about doing your best is do you have reverence for what you're doing for the institution of what you're doing to the, the, the ethic of what you're doing. Do you have, you have reverence for it. So it inspires you like, like Dwight Eisenhower realized he didn't quit smoking because he thought it was bad for him. Yeah. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but he could have quit it earlier, but it was that moment when he was becoming emperor of the planet, basically that he said, I need to stop smoking. Yeah, he's like, I can't afford to die of a heart attack. That's what he was saying. Yeah, and, and he wouldn't be able to perform if he was in the hospital sick right. from a right. heart attack or lung cancer or whatever. And you clearly have a, a, a reverence for, for writing. You, I don't, you know, you've told bits and pieces of your stories in your books, but you basically moved out of the big city where you could have been super successful. You moved to a small town. What are you, like 50 miles outside of Austin, something like that? Yeah, probably more like 30, but I'm right outside Austin, yeah. Yeah. And so you kind of almost out of reverence for the fact that you wanted to be a writer and not like a millionaire or whatever, you did all of these things to become the best writer you could be, extremely successful. How many books now have you written? I met I met you the day you published your first book. <laughs> yes. I think I think it's 14. I don't know the exact number. It's between let's let's it's more than 10, less than 15. And that required you to take it, have these disciplines. Like you basically, you know, you, you, you practice what you preach. And so maybe that's a way, I, I think this is such an important question. How do you do, when they say, why not the best, or am I doing my best? Of course I should do my best. I wouldn't want to not do my best, but it's very, very difficult. And you've given me this lens just now of how to look at it. Like 
why am I not doing, why am I not showing reverence? How am I, in what ways am I not showing reverence for something I want to be good at? Am I, do I have too much negative self-talk? Do I, do I not have enough confidence? Do, am I not studying the proper way? Am I not devoting the right amount of time to the right activities? Am I just like, am I just fooling around in batting practice instead of really videotaping my swing and, and analyzing it with a coach afterwards? Like, there's many ways to establish reverence and it's so easy to not do it. Well, and the, the weird thing is like reverence, I think people, it, it's like, it, it almost makes us uncomfortable, right? Like to call it a gift or to feel reverence for it or to respect it or like, did you read, um, I, I don't watch Succession, but you, did you see that? There was that big controversy about one of the actors in Succession. He was like profiled by the New York Times. And they basically, it was this sort of like subtle mocking piece sort of the joke being on the actor for like giving a shit, for like taking the craft seriously and himself seriously as a result. I think it's it's easier to kind of be ironic or irreverent or cynical about things. And there, I, I, I think it, it, to do your best, it requires um, a certain amount of self-discipline I think justice is tied up in here too. It's unjust to cheat the world of potential gains or innovations because you know you uh, are lazy or because you're afraid of what other people might think. And and to me, honestly, or you the had other, it for the fair, yeah, right, yes. But the the other part of it is like there's a, a certain amount of courage in it, right? Like um, uh, Jerry Weintraub tells this story about uh, how he and James Kahn are both studying at the actor's studio. And I tell the story in the first book, Courage is Calling, but they're both studying it at, at the actor's studio and they have to do this class and the class requires that they wear tights. And so they go to some you know, uh, dance store on Broadway and uh, they put on the tights and James Caan looks at them, feel, puts them on, feels ridiculous, buys them and Jerry Weintraub can't do it. He's like, I cannot be seen in these tights. And he's like, that's why uh, James Caan goes on to be one of the greatest actors of all time. And he's like, I never acted in anything. There, It requires a certain amount of courage to be like, I don't give a shit what other people think. I think this is important. I care about it. I'm going to do my best. And like, I don't care if you laugh at me. I don't care if you think that I'm egotistical. I don't care if you think that I'm silly. I don't, I, I don't think, I don't care if you think that I'm lame. I actually care about this. And that's why... I'm doing my best. So, so this is a great story about discipline because, so there's a couple of things to unpack there. One is James Conn clearly realized himself the benefit. He loved acting. He loved the process of acting. It wasn't a joke to him. It yep. wasn't like, oh, anybody can go on stage and repeat, memorize lines. He wanted to take it seriously. So he had reverence. And it wasn't, you mentioned the words gift earlier. It's not a gift in the sense that even if you have potential, even if you have a gift, you need that discipline sure. to unlock it. You, and, and again, I'm going to use the word, I'm overusing the word reverence because I like it better than doing your best because it, it, it makes a link between what you're doing and the disciplines of it. It's, it's you, have, you, have, you have faith and belief in something that if I do the things that make me better at this, I will be a better person as a result. But it's also deciding what you have reverence for. Like Jerry sure. Weintraub had reverence for other things in the entertainment industry, sure. not acting. He didn't have enough belief in the benefits of acting for his life to have the discipline, to develop the disciplines, to be successful at it. 
And you see that a lot. What if somebody is, doesn't have reverence for anything? Can they still be disciplined? Every story you mention, somebody loves something. Toni Morrison didn't wake up at five in the morning every day to write her amazing novels because she wanted to win a Nobel Prize and be famous. She yeah. did it because she loved writing. Sure. And what if she didn't? What if she didn't love anything? <laughs> I think it's really hard, right? Uh, there's a quote from Seneca. He says, uh, uh, if you don't know what port you're sailing towards, no wind is favorable. I think it's really hard to be committed to something, to do your best, to know what to do or not do, what to say yes to or say no to, if you don't know where you're trying to go. And then also, like, if you decide that life has no meaning, then everything becomes meaningless. If you decide that certain things, that life does have meaning, then it means that certain things also become meaningful. So I think, you know, cynicism is a choice. Uh, General Mattis had this great line once I heard, he said, cynicism is cowardice, right? Like, because if you think about being cynical, deciding that nothing matters, deciding that you're, you don't respect anything, that you don't believe in anything, it's kind of the ultimate cop-out because then it means you don't have to try, you don't have to be hard on yourself, you don't have to worry about anything. Like, it, it, when you sort of go, lol, nothing matters, it's true. Nothing nothing matters to you. Well, and you know, that that's... So the word, obviously, the word cynicism is related to the Greek school of philosophy, the cynics, which was side-by-side side with the Stoics, and they took it a little more extreme. You once told me several years ago, cynics are like Stoics without clothes. Yes. Cause, yes. Cause often they would just, they didn't care about anything. They would just walk around naked or Diogenes would, would famously just walk around masturbating. And yet it's, it's still like an acclaimed school of, of philosophy, but they weren't the advisors to emperors, even yeah. though the emperors would sometimes beg them like Alexander the great is famously yeah. known to do that. And, uh, and yet the, the, the Stoics still realize that participating in society is important at, at, at any level. And, I, and and on that any level thing is important because you have the Lou Gehrig story side by side with Dwight Eisenhower. So yeah. here's a guy who's reconstructing the entire planet after a world war. And here's another guy who swings a piece of wood at an 80 mile per hour ball. And we love both of them, right? Yes. Baseball is quote unquote, just a game, but it's, it's, it's America's pastime, whatever we give it, we give it adulation for a variety of reasons. But it doesn't matter what it is you have reverence for. You're go to to be good at something complex and difficult. Essentially, means mastering yourself. Yes, it matters what you do with the unique circumstances or gifts or opportunities in front of you. So uh, we each have our own calling. Some of them are enormous. Some of them are are humble. But I think if you do them right and you do them well, there's an immense amount of meaning and greatness in them. There's a story I, I love in the book about this uh, Greek uh, general who sort of everyone sees as this threat. So they give him this job, basically being in charge of uh, the city's sewers. And they think he's going to be like humiliated that he has to like basically, you know, clean up people's shit and piss. And he says, no, it's a man who brings distinction to the position, not the position to the man. And he does like an amazing job and he cleans up the city and everything's operating well. And it actually becomes, as a result of the work that he does, it actually becomes a respectable sort of sought after position. And so I think it, it's, it's about what we do 
individually with what we have and with what we can do. And if everyone does that, the world becomes a better place. I think my problem with the cynics is like, it's great for somebody to be like, I get rid of all my possessions. I'm going to live on the fringes of society, question everything, uh, laugh at everything, criticize everything. Like, that's great. But somebody has to do the stuff, right? Somebody has to keep people safe. Somebody has to invent new things. Somebody has to treat the sick, right? Somebody has to create art. Um, somebody has to teach children, right? Somebody has to do all that stuff. And so if everyone opts out uh, or drops out, you know, the world doesn't work. And so I, I think it's like the Stoics who kind of believe that we each have our own, it's like, ironically, we each have our own discipline that we then have to be disciplined about. And there's a there's a really interesting story in the book which which highlights that I think in an interesting way. Do you want to tell the story about Arthur Ashe's dad? So Arthur Ashe was one of the most amazing tennis players in history from the '60s and '70s, and um, black tennis player, probably the first a uh, black winner of Wimbledon. One of those you know yeah stories. And what, tell that great story about an experience his father had. So his his dad was this really interesting figure. He's sort of this uh, self-made man in uh, Virginia, um, sort of hustles together all these uh, odd jobs to 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 support his kids. Um, you know, has like some rental properties, and he has a job over here and a job over here and a job over here. He's like sort of a park supervisor. He basically does a little bit of everything to make a better life for his kids. And one of the jobs he has in the, in what was then the segregated South is he's a driver for this Jewish businessman who owns a department store in the South. And you might think that this Jewish businessman is very successful and rich and important, uh, which he was uh, compared to his black driver. We're talking about a caste system again, but compared to whites in that town, he is an other, he is less than. And so uh, there's this story where his father is, is, is the, the, the businessman that he works for uh, is going out, he's trying to buy this piece of property. And it happens to be that the man he's buying it from is both racist and anti-Semitic. And so uh, uh, Arthur Ashe's father drives his boss out there and he, he's, he's able to watch this negotiation where the department store owners are trying to negotiate for the property. And the owner is just like unpleasant. He's being rude. He's talking down to him. He's being anti-Semitic. And ultimately, the department store owner puts up with all of it, completes the negotiation, buys the property. And then as they're driving away, Arthur Ashe's father says, you know, how could you do that? Like, and and think about what it must have, uh, how bad it must have been for a, a black man in the South to say, how could you have put up with that kind of indignity? If you consider the kind of indignity that he had to put up with on a daily basis. And the business owner looks at him and he goes, look, I wanted to buy that piece of property. I now own that piece of property and he doesn't. Nothing else matters. His point was, you know, to get upset by it, to get offended by it, to retaliate would deprive him of the very thing he wanted, which was what he thought getting the better end of that business transaction. And so he was willing to be in command of himself to ignore slights and provocations to get what he wanted, which he does. And you could argue that this 
is exactly what Arthur Ashe does as a tennis player in this in a segregated country uh, where his white opponents can throw temper tantrums, can break rackets, can live extravagant, flashy lifestyles, and he can't. And Arthur Ashe figures out a way to survive in that system, to subtly undermine that system, and ultimately triumph over and beat that system, and then bring about sort of much-needed change within it. Uh, and, and he would always say that that story from his father shaped that approach for him, that like, I have something I want. And so by losing my temper, getting offended, losing control of myself, I'm not winning by doing that. I'm actually costing myself, and I'm giving that person who doesn't like me, who's judging me, who wants to see me fail, I'm actually giving them what they want. It's so interesting because what I see in that story also is that outcomes are a side effect of discipline, which is your point when you're when, in, in the title, Discipline is Destiny. Because, for instance, the institution this Jewish businessman had reverence for, and I'll, I'll use that word again, is owning real estate and building his real estate empire. And so he knew the discipline it would take to get what he wants, to get sure. the outcomes he wants. But he he could have just as easily been, I'm going to always support Judaism and not tolerate any anti-Semitism. And he sure. could have stood up for himself the way Martin Luther King did in the story you describe about Martin Luther King letting the Nazi hit him. Sure. And that's another story in the book. So, but the discipline would probably have been the same. You have respect for something that's greater than you. And what am I not doing that's respectful enough so that I could learn to be better at what I'm doing. So you could have had a different outcome, but still behaved in a way that would have shown discipline and that he had a strong core. Well, I'm writing about this now. It's like when you know what your North Star is, when you know what the most essential, important thing is, then it allows you to say, yeah, how should I respond to this? What, what matters here and what doesn't matter? And yeah, you're right. If you're if you're a social activist, then standing up for your race or religion is what your what duty is demanding of you in that situation. If your job is advancing your family and your people's interest by succeeding in business, by showing, you know, your skill or aptitude, then you know, your North Star tells you, hey, don't let this person rile you up or get to you. You think of Jackie Robinson, right? Like Jackie Robinson was people was not this like passive guy. I mean, he was a civil rights activist from his early days. He it, when he played uh basketball in college, he would he would fight people who would say racist things to him. He gets kicked out of the army for refusing to go to the back of the bus right? On, on base, which was at that time a violation of federal law. And so when he, uh, when he makes it into Major League Baseball, or in fact is chosen to break the color barrier in professional baseball, he's, he's told and understands that, he, he needs some, that they need someone who is strong enough, brave enough, controlled enough, disciplined enough to not fight back. And the amount of stress, uh, of of abuse and provocation and you know physical uh antagonism that that Jackie Robinson faces in those years in in the league are immense 
but he understands that the purpose of what they were doing was to get him to prove that he was not in control of himself, that he didn't deserve to be there, and that no one like him deserved to be there. And so he understood his North Star was to be, one, a great fucking baseball player, and two, to not give in or be distracted by the bad faith efforts of these people who wanted to see him fail. So I think it comes down to like, what what are you trying to do? What is the most important thing? What is the thing that you have reverence for? And only once you have that, can you decide how to respond or react in these individual scenarios? In that case with Jackie Robinson, and, and, and this happens with a lot of stories, is it that he has two North Stars? So like you said, Branch Rickey was the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers at the time. He didn't want just a great baseball player. That was one criteria. But the one, he knew Jackie Robinson was a great player, just like many other players in, he wasn't necessarily the best player in the Negro Leagues at that time. But Branch Rickey specifically asked them, can you turn the other cheek? Can you not fight back? That was the criteria that was important to him. And so you think Jackie Robinson, of course he had the North Star of being a great baseball player, but do you think he had a, a, a bigger one also to, to move the needle on segregation and racism? I think that's that's totally right. He doesn't have the luxury of just being a great baseball player, which is basically everyone else in the league only has to think about that. And I just it, it's it's important, you know, I heard this quote about um Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers once. His wife was saying, "When you make him out to be a saint, you overlook how hard he worked." Right? That that like if you if you look at Jackie Robinson and you go oh he was just bigger than all of it if you look at Jackie Robinson and you just go yeah he just never let him like like you if you try to ascribe it to like his personality uh, or that it's some sort of you know just thing he had you're you're actually cheating him of the true sort of I'm going to use this word majesty of his accomplishment which was. He was a human like everyone else. He had a temper like everyone else. He felt the, you know, the pitches and the slides with the spikes out and the racial slurs. He felt every single one of those. He was just in such command of himself and he had such clarity about what he was trying to do that he never retaliated, fought back, uh, or lowered himself to doing what I think any normal human being would be entitled to do in that situation. So it's interesting, like how many of these stories, how many of these people that show extraordinary discipline have a larger North Star than it seems. Like, and I'm sticking to baseball, not because I love baseball, but because maybe the opposite. It's just a game. Yeah. Right. So it's hard. It's like saying, oh, this guy's the greatest bridge player or whatever. Yeah. Let's study his life. But does everybody need a further North Star that's even greater than what their worldly success speaks to? Like yeah, Lou Gehrig, did he have a greater North Star? I mean, I, I think first off, like you you have to take the thing that maybe isn't important uh, to everyone else. It has to become really important to you. Like writing, sometimes I step back and I look at writing and I think just how silly it is. Like here I am just like 
arranging words on the page that I think sound cool. Uh, and, you know, I, just, I sometimes just try to remind myself that what I do is silly, but also it's not silly. It's really important to me. Like it means something to me for, I don't know why. I don't know why it became my thing or how it became my thing, but it is my thing. And like, I feel like earnestly, like just loving the craft of what you do, that is an important North Star. But I think, you know, for someone like Lou Gehrig, baseball was like a way out. It was a way, I mean, he's playing baseball in the middle of the depression, in the middle of a, of a world war. It was at that time, America's game. Like, I think he very much saw himself as a role model, as an exemplar, as a, a, a story of the American dream. I mean, he's, he's a child of two impoverished immigrants uh, who, you know, makes it good in the world. And I think that he, he saw himself as a representative of, his race at that time, you know, because of World War One and World War Two, there's a lot of German discrimination inside America, and he saw himself as, you know, being. It feels weird to to see him as similar to Jackie Robinson, but saw himself as as representing his race and his his people, and wanting to push back against, you know, suspicions or racism at that time. So I think he had a larger uh, why of that, but I, I I also think that for whatever reason the game came to mean something to him that he 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 didn't take lightly and and i think what you somebody who's a professional pool player that seems like even less serious than baseball but there must be some part of it for them that they connected to that means something and i don't think we should we should brush that off i think we should respect it and and in in referencing you know robert green's book mastery i think I think there's a magic to mastery and not mm -hmm. necessarily the outcome of mastery, which is being the best at something, but the process of it. And I think whether it's the pool player or the baseball player or the general or the president or the queen or the writer, I think there's a respect for mastery also. It's like you touch the sublime when you're carving yourself to be a master of something. And I think a little bit for all of these people, all of these stories, amazing stories that you tell, you, you, you tell the ups and the downs. Like Ralph, Ralph Allison, amazing writer, Invisible Man is one of the most beautiful books ever written, but he couldn't really write again because he, he was obsessed with perfectionism. And so he disrespected not only writing, but the process of, of mastery. We, can't, we, don't, we don't have the next book from him, really, the next great book from him. No, that's that's right. I mean, I feel like, you know, Robert Greene calls it our life's task, which I think is a really great phrase. Like, what is the what is the thing that you were put here to do that only you can do? And I think when you look at Ralph Ellison's story, and I, I'm fascinated by Ralph Ellison because Invisible Man is one of my favorite books, you know, he really gets caught up in the literary scene, right? Like he he enjoys being the author of the Invisible Man more than he likes being the humble writer uh, sitting alone in the room making stuff. And I think that ultimately leads him astray a little bit. I mean, I see this in you, like you, you writing and, and speaking like your individual truth is, is I, I see so clearly that it's your life's task, even though you're good at chess, even though you're good at, at investing, even though you're good at public speaking, like, you can't not do that thing. 
And I notice how always it's going into some new outlet for you, whether it's stand-up comedy or answering questions on Quora or podcast. Like you, there's some part, like, like I wouldn't say you're just a writer because you seem to function in lots of different mediums, but there is some part of you that feels compelled to like articulate or explain some point of view about the world and you like can't not do that. And you know, it's funny because whenever you're trying to achieve some life's task as, as Robert Green would call it, people are not going to like you for it. For sure. <laughs> because maybe they're not doing it or maybe they don't like what you're saying or doing. And that's part of the discipline is the psychology of managing that yes. and, and managing yourself through, through the difficult times of that. Well, let me ask you what clearly you also have some, some higher goal you're going towards. What is that? Yeah. To me, to me, it's definitely writing. Like writing is the thing that I find gives me meaning and, uh, relief and excitement and but you, all, but you don't write things. superhero comics no you, no I, you I, write I, books about stoicism i i feel like my my ability or my calling is to make ancient wisdom accessible and practical in everyday life and i take an immense amount of satisfaction uh both like hearing from people who that's benefited but i also like the sheer puzzle of doing it is fulfilling and meaningful and the, what I practice. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like this book is coming out, but like I spent the first three hours this morning like moving pieces around on the, the, the book that I'm doing after this. And that's really like what I love. I love the process of doing it. And then publishing is this interruption to that thing. What I really love is taking ideas, like the, even the stories that we're telling, like the fact that I found those stories and brought them to people. And like you said, like you hadn't heard some of them. Like that's what I love doing because I love the process of hearing things that I also didn't know about. I mean, there's a lot to study there. Like, and for anybody who wants to be a writer or a communicator, I would almost like re-listen to what you just said because like in the aftermath of this book, you write about a little bit about the process and some of the troubles you had during the process of writing this book. And it was interesting to me, and this shows, this is about, again, what happens on the path to mastering something is that the situation itself that you're in needs to speak to you in a weird way. You can't fight the situation. So what I mean by that in your story is some when you were organizing your car, you were you were stuck in the yep. writing of this book. You were organizing your your index cards. You, you you've written before about your your writing process. You were organizing your index cards, and somehow or other, you you mentioned some stories: Lou Gehrig, Churchill, Eisenhower, whoever, whoever it was you mentioned. Those the shapes of those stories started to appear to you. Yeah, and it wasn't like you forced those stories to fit this shape. The shapes. This is what happens with mastery, and this is why it's. A, a touch with the sublime, they spoke the situation, the book itself spoke to you and you obeyed its command. Like, what do you, what is that process that gets you there? Like, why do you think 
For instance, Lou Gehrig rose rose up out of all the stories you must have researched for this. It's weird. Yeah, there's a, a there's kind of a magic to it. I think you've had Elizabeth Gilbert on. You know, she calls it like the big magic. But there is a magic to it. And then it's also this weird process. Like you, you tend to have a hunch and then you follow that hunch and then it reveals something that you didn't even know. So like, obviously, I'm writing a book about self-discipline and I wanted to talk like endurance or perseverance or commitment. That's a, a, a facet or a function of discipline. So I was like, I was just sort of sitting as I was loosely kind of thinking about what the book would be. I was, I was like, oh, maybe Lou Gehrig would be a character. And so I went and I was like, I'll get a book about Lou Gehrig. And I skipped over all like the recently published books and I found like the oldest one that I could find. And it was fascinating. It was written by this guy who had like gone to school with him or the same school as him. It wasn't probably scholarly accurate, but it was just like really, really inspiring. But it wasn't nearly enough. I mean, I probably write 5,000, 6,000 words about Lou Gehrig in the book. And that book probably gave me 200 words or something, you know? Um, so then I read another book and another book. I, don't, I think it's just out of frame. I don't want to mess up, the, but I, I read one, two, three, four, five. I think I read six or seven books about Lou Gehrig, plus watched a bunch of videos, plus read newspaper articles from that time, you know, plus watched a movie. You know, I, 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 I just consumed everything I could about this. Another example, Queen Elizabeth is one of the characters in the book. I mean, this is a 300-page book about Queen Elizabeth, 600-page, 600-page, 200-page, 300-page, you know, I think I think I read four thousand pages of books about Queen Elizabeth. Like I had a vague sense that they would be what I wanted to talk about, but then I also had to really go find it, and then also I had to fall in love with them as an exemplar of what I was talking about. And and that that's what gets me excited. You can see right here. This is let's say two hundred, eight hundred. 400, 400, you know, I, I probably read uh, three or four other books, but I, I read, you know, several thousand pages about Harry Truman, who's a character in the book that I'm writing now. You know, you have to have that, that level of commitment slash fascination to, to get what you end up writing about someone. And, and also I'm wondering, to what extent are these stories about other people also stories about you. So for instance, <laughs> Lou Gehrig, in some ways you, you portray him as the direct opposite of his father. And you and I have spoken on the podcast before about some of the disagreements you've had with your father, sure. particularly on the political side. And I wonder if that drew you in as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Just for people who didn't know, Lou Gehrig, like it's ironic. Lou Gehrig has the longest streak in baseball for you know decades and decades, never misses a day of work, is deeply committed respects the gift. His father was notorious for faking being sick to not have to go to work. His father was basically a bum, is what you would say. He wasn't like homeless. His father was like a bum. He was a lazy guy. And so clearly a bunch of Lou Gehrig's commitment is a reaction against his father. Um, my relationship with my dad is complicated. And I would say we're, we're very similar in a lot of ways. Um, 
uh, my dad, super hardworking, always had a million irons in the fire, you know, uh, uh, you know, fascinated with history, all this stuff. So I don't, I don't know how much the stuff I'm writing about is a reaction against that, but I would say like a hundred percent of the stories that I tell in the book, they're not, they're not about me, but they are me seeking to understand myself and the world through the characters. Like, I think you're not being honest if you're just writing reverently about these other people. I'm trying to use them as a way to understand things and to communicate things. And I, I'm learning as I'm writing. I definitely don't want it to come off as like, I am a master of discipline and this is right. Like Jocko Willink can write his books from the position of being Jocko Willink. And, you know, he is giving his worldview and strategies from discipline as, you know, not just a Navy SEAL, but as a instructor and trainer of Navy SEALs and leader of Navy SEALs. That's not only not who I am, that's not what writing is for me. For me, writing is the exploration, the the study of these ideas, not the preaching of the ideas. Yeah. And I think that's what gives it the filter of being able to say something unique because like Queen Elizabeth is a great story. Everyone watched The Crown or, or knows about Queen Elizabeth and knows a lot of the things she did, but you have a very specific focus. You talk about how many people she's shaken hands with, something like 4 million people. She's at tea with a, 2 million people. Yeah. Um, she's traveled millions of miles by by boat just to see everyone. And and I remember, I, I don't know if I was at your very first talk, the talk we did at Mastermind Talks in, I think it was 2013. Yeah. Um, and you clearly were like, I think like you almost like your back was to the audience. <laughs> like you clearly had this, distaste that you've since gotten over for kind of interacting with people who wanted to interact with you. And it seemed like that's what you, that your story of Queen Elizabeth was a story of someone who by birth was forced to interact with 4 million people. And it wasn't like her thing, but it became her thing in a way. And, and through that, she achieved a higher North star, which is serving the interests of, you know, an empire. You know, it's fascinating. I, I actually, that subtext is, is actually a very good read. And it wasn't one that I thought of one time because she, she was kind of an introverted person forced into a fundamentally extroverted but constrained role. Um, I was just fascinated. Like, the, the, I, I found her so interesting because, like, power usually comes with so many freedoms. And what to me is so interesting about the power and influence she has is that it's primarily rooted in what she is not able to do. And her greatness was in the fact that she never did it, right? Like she never got involved in politics and like she never, uh, inter she never micromanaged. She never intervened. She followed her sort of ceremonial role and turned it into this kind of transcendent great thing. Um, and I, I think I was also interested in the challenge of writing about her and not just repeating the greatest hits from the TV show. Like I tried to find stuff that maybe people didn't know. And that's why I had to read so many books about her. But um, I, I, yeah, I feel like I'm, Robert Greene does this, I think, better than anyone. But like, you know, if I'm telling a story about how once I had an opinion that I didn't express, 
And that's what, you know, self-discipline is really about. I just don't think that's very interesting, right? Like, I want to tell the story of the Queen of England, you know, going 70 years without ever giving an on-the-record statement to the media (laughs) and how incredibly difficult that would be in anyone who's ever been misquoted or attacked or criticized. Like, all you want to do is be like, whoa, 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 let me correct the record. You know, let me explain. And she would never did that. And, and so um, I, I, I just found her to be endlessly fascinating in that, in that regard. And, and, you know, like Lou Gehrig is sort of famous for one thing, but because that thing is so interesting, we almost gloss over how impressive what they did actually was. Yeah, and, and look, every story in this book was equally incredible and, and fascinating. And I got many, there's many levels of lessons to be found. Uh, and so look, this book, the, the discipline is destiny is the second of, of four about the four store virtues. Courage is calling was the first discipline is destiny is, is the second. And the subtitle here is the power of self-control. It's funny because discipline is destiny. I sort of feel like almost destiny is the subtitle, but then there's the power of self-control is also a subtitle. Yeah. But, uh, what's the what's the third and the fourth? So the cardinal virtues are courage, uh, self discipline, justice, and wisdom. So I'm I'm about. I, I think I could. I think it. I think I could say I'm halfway. Uh, it's that I think that's not exaggerating where I am. But I'm about halfway through the justice book, and I'm trying again. The challenge on every book is like, how do you write about the thing, but not in the way that people think that you want to write about it. So when people hear justice, I think they think like the legal system or they think politics or they think social justice. And uh, obviously that's all a component of justice. But to me, like, or, or to the Stoics, at least justice was like doing the right thing and how to do the right thing and when to do the right thing and how to bring, you know, the right thing into the world. So that that's the book that I'm writing now. And then when I finish that, I have to write one about the, the pursuit of rather than the, you know, attainment of wisdom. Well, that's interesting that you refer to it that way because young people, let's say there are young people and old people. Let's say there are two categories of people. Are young people ever wise? Because they don't have enough experience to kind of have the pattern recognition to convert that to wisdom. So it's good that you refer to it as the pursuit of because when you're younger, you can pursue without and get pleasure from that before you attain. Well, it's funny. I, I literally, that was the first time those words had ever come out of my mouth because I haven't really started that book, but I wrote it down uh, on a note card and I will revisit it in about a year. Because um, I, I haven't quite... Fi- uh, one of the reasons I saved that book for last is it feels like it's the hardest one in the whole series. And it feels like... I don't want to say it's the one I'm least qualified to write, but it's the one that I is most presumptuous to write. And so I've kind of been intimidated by the whole process. But I think if I, you know, uh, from what I just said, if I, if I write it more from the perspective of the pursuit of wisdom, which is something you never get to, but you are always getting closer to, that is a more appropriate slash possible uh, perspective on wisdom as opposed to, you know, let me tell you how I am wise. Right. I think that's right. Because, and also there's something, um, superhero origin quality to the pursuit of like, yes. like we know 
Martin Luther King, for instance, was a great man. I have a dream was the greatest speech ever. But what, what did he do 20 years earlier that planted the seeds so he knew how to make a speech like that? Yes. You know Not what, only I've, from the perspective of racism, but how to actually construct a speech that moves an entire generation of people. You know, and if I, I have behind me, this is the Taylor Branch series on, uh, on uh, Martin Luther King. It's incredible. Um, there's a moment in the book, this is right around the time of the Montgomery bus boycott. You know, sort of Rosa Parks forces the hand of all these civil rights leaders. They were sort of talking about these things and then all of a sudden she does it and then she's thrown in jail. And there's this moment, I'm forgetting the names of all the characters involved, and I, and I may write about it at some point. But basically, the one of the pastors is like, you know, this lady did this thing. Are we going to back her up or are we going to be cowards? And Martin Luther King raises his hand and he says, like, I'm not a coward. I'll lead the organizing effort. And to me, that's, you know, you talk about the hero's journey. That's the call to adventure, right? He's He's... He's asked in that moment, are you going to do something about this, right? And he steps forward instead of stepping back. And, you know, history is forever changed as a result of that singular moment. And, you know, the I Have a Dream speech all these years later would not have been possible without that happening. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's really interesting things that you're, that you're focusing on. And that's why I love all your books so much and love talking about this stuff every time, every time you have a new book come out. So I can't wait for these next two as well. I so, know. I appreciate it. And you actually, Ryan, read, you actually the, read the books before you interview people, which is uh, very nice and not at all the norm. And I know. And I tell Jay, it, it's, it's hard for him sometimes because I want to interview a lot of people whose, whose books I admire and enjoy. And I don't know if you've read um, Slouching Towards Utopia by Brad DeLong. It's an no. economic history of America. It's a very good book. And I think you would enjoy it. But it was, you know, like an 800-page book and then your book. And he schedules these podcasts back to back. <laughs> so it's like, all I do is read. Like, I try to explain, you know, my wife will say to me, oh, you're just doing like an hour's worth of podcast today. No, I've got six hours of reading oh. for that podcast. Well, I so, try to keep them short for you. No, no, it's I, I, it's all good. It's all good. Because I even said to her, "Oh, I'm reading this book," and she said, "It looks like a short book." And I'm like, "No, it's 300 pages. It's still a book." <laughs> <laughs> but your your books always have so many fascinating stories. It's a it's a pure pleasure. So once again, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and and good luck on this on the next book. Uh, thanks for having me. 